Israeli officials say the four-day pause in fighting with Hamas will begin tomorrow at the earliest with questions over some details of the deal. It's Thursday, November 23rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, New York's governor says there's no signs that the car explosion, which shut down several U.S.-Canada border crossings yesterday, is related to terrorism. Also this hour, why regulators want to require big banks to have more money on hand for when things go wrong. Plus, an expert from the Harvard Kennedy School on navigating difficult conversations about politics at the Thanksgiving dinner table. And just in time for the busy holiday travel season, the search for the best airport bathroom in the U.S. In sports, Celtics and Bruins both win. Sunny today, near 50. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Israeli officials say a four-day pause in fighting with Hamas in Gaza is on hold until at least Friday. NPR's Lauren Frere reports the International Committee of the Red Cross appears to be disputing an aspect of the agreement that Israel's prime minister described in a national address last night. In a televised speech, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu unfolded a piece of paper and appeared to read from it. The Red Cross will be allowed to visit the rest of the abductees and provide them with necessary medicines, Netanyahu said. He was referring to all of the roughly 240 hostages being held in Gaza, not just the 50 women and children slated for release as part of a pause in fighting. But a Red Cross spokesperson tells NPR the group was, quote, not made aware of any agreement reached by both parties related to such visits. She says that should these visits be agreed upon, the Red Cross stands ready. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Ramallah, in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. A judge in Florida says a lawsuit against Tesla and its autopilot driving car can proceed to trial. NPR's Vanessa Romo has more on the latest legal battle over the company's controversial self-driving technology. The Palm Beach County judge ruled that there was reasonable evidence to conclude that Tesla owner and CEO Elon Musk and other company executives knew that the vehicle's autopilot system was defective, but they continued to tout its capabilities and sell it anyway. The suit stems from a deadly crash in 2019 in which Jeremy Banner switched on the autopilot function on his Tesla Model 3 about 10 seconds before it drove under the trailer of a semi-truck. The collision sheared off the top of the car, killing Banner. In the ruling, the judge said Banner's accident is, quote, eerily similar to Tesla's first autopilot-related death in 2016. In that case, a Model S also smashed into a semi-truck, chopping off the top of the vehicle and killing the driver. Vanessa Romo, NPR News. Demonstrations are intensifying against the construction of a new police training facility in Atlanta that protesters have dubbed Cop City. Shamane Cruz of member station WABE reports a petition to put the center's funding on the ballot remains stalled in court. They submitted the signatures to City Hall in late September, but they've just been sitting there ever since because almost immediately city officials refuse to begin verifying them until a judge rolls on whether they're even valid. So there's a court hearing scheduled for next month where we should find out more. Protesters argue that construction of the training facility will exacerbate environmental damage in a low-income, majority black area. This is NPR News. 
India says it has restored electronic visa services for Canadian nationals. The move comes two months after Canada alleged that India was involved in the assassination of a Sikh separatist in Canada. The two countries expelled each other's diplomats following the accusations. A couple of NASA astronauts will be spending Thanksgiving on board the International Space Station. They'll be joined by astronauts from Europe, Japan and Russia. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports they're planning a festive dinner. In a video message beamed down to Earth from the station, NASA astronaut Laurel O'Hara said she was looking forward to a quiet day off. She showed off some of the food for their planned meal. The cranberry sauce was in a can, but the rest was in pouches that floated around her. We've got some roast turkey, cranberry sauce, butternut squash, one of my favorites, corn, and to finish, cranapple dessert. NASA says the first Thanksgiving in space was 50 years ago, 1973, during a Skylab mission, though the astronauts back then didn't have any special Thanksgiving foods. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. Tomorrow is Black Friday, the unofficial start of the holiday shopping season. The National Retail Federation is predicting a record number of people to spend the long holiday weekend shopping either in stores or online. This is NPR News in Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. On Beacon Hill, lawmakers left for the Thanksgiving holiday without reaching a deal on new funding for the state's emergency shelter system. There are disagreements between Democrats in the House and Senate over how exactly to use the $250 million that both sides have approved. Neither side had an estimate on when an agreement could be reached. That budget deal also includes pay raises for state workers. A local nonprofit that's helping feed families this Thanksgiving says the need is greater than ever. Beth Chambers is with Catholic Charities. Before the pandemic, the nonprofit served about 200 families a week. Now Chambers says they're helping up to 400 families a day. The needs are continuing to grow. We look at at what families are having to pay for rent and utilities. This option of, of coming to get food is helping families with the fact that they can put more towards the rent or put more t- towards a utility bill. She says people are also coming in more frequently for meals. Many have started coming once a week instead of once a month. The loss of daylight hours in winter can take a toll on the mental health of New Englanders. That's according to research from the Winter Depression Research Clinic at Yale. Jenny Ahrens has more. The clinic's director estimates that around 10 percent of New England's population are negatively impacted mentally by the loss of daylight hours, and they could benefit from light therapy. Dr. Paul Dazan says research has shown that exposure to 10,000 lux of bright light for 30 minutes before 8 o'clock each morning will help the majority of those suffering from winter depression. 10,000 lux is like being outside in July. So you want a really bright, large device that you can conveniently sit in front of. While light therapy devices can be bought without a prescription, Dazan says if someone is withdrawing from activities, feeling a loss of enjoyment, or experiencing changes in sleep or appetite, they should seek a professional assessment. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jenny Ahrens. It's 7.07. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts tomorrow. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Bruins beat the Panthers 3-1 to last night in South Florida. The Celtics also won. They topped the Milwaukee Bucks 119-116. to Sunny today. It'll be near 50. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 30s. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s. Sunny on Saturday and in the 30s. It's 42 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. After more than a month of captivity, the first group of hostages held by Hamas in Gaza could be released as early as tomorrow. A four-day pause in fighting to facilitate an exchange of prisoners and aid was expected to begin today, but Israel says talks to finalize that deal are still going on. Joined now by Diana Butu. She's a Palestinian human rights lawyer who was a peace negotiator and spokesperson for the Palestine Liberation Organization. Uh, Diana, as someone who's been at the negotiating table with Israelis. Uh, what are your thoughts on this deal? Well, it's sad that it's taken so long to achieve this because this is something that was mentioned within the first few days of, uh, of the Israeli attack on the Gaza Strip. And uh, the Israeli government took the position that they instead wanted to go in and, as they put it, crush Hamas, which all they've really done is, is uh, exert a great deal of damage to to infrastructure, kill close to 18,000 Palestinians. And it was only because the families, uh, these Israeli families, put pressure on the Israeli government that we now see that they are now talking about exchanging Israelis for Palestinians. Um, so it's very sad that it's taken so long and so many lives lost in the process. But is this deal better than nothing at this point? Of course. Look, any any uh, respite to Palestinians in terms of the the halt on bombing uh, is very much welcomed. You know, this is I don't, I'm not sure if people really understand, but the Gaza Strip is a very tiny, tiny space. It's 26 miles long and 12 miles wide at its widest point. It's sustained uh, over 6000 bombs every single week. Um, and the, the amount of destruction has been unprecedented. And so any respite is, of course, welcome. I just hope that it's not simply a pause, but an actual ceasefire. And this is where efforts must be channeled into pushing for a complete and total cessation so that pe- so that people's lives uh, can, can be put back together so that the Gaza Strip can be rebuilt. And of course, so that people can be returned to their families. Now, this deal is supposed to exchange women and children on both sides, hostages held by Hamas, Palestinians held in Israeli jails. Um, what's known about the Palestinians who would be freed under this agreement? Well, there are so far, there's a list of 300 uh, Palestinians that Israel has put forward. And I think it's important for people to understand that the vast majority of these people are, are uh, Palestinians who've never been convicted of a crime. Israel has a system in which, which is called administrative detention, whereby people can be picked up and held without charge, without trial for six months at a time, and that detention then renewed indefinitely. So many of the people who are on this list fall into that category. There are five children uh, that are under the age of 14 uh, and, uh, and a number of women as well. I think it's very important for people to understand that this is not a normal legal system, but it's a system where Israel has had a 95 to 99 percent conviction rate and, uh, and people are not tried in a regular 
court. They're tried in in what's called a military court. Again, it's really sad that it's gotten to this point. This is why so many Palestinians have been pushing the international community to pressure Israel to release these individuals because they shouldn't be languishing in prisons in, in, in any case, and certainly not children. Considering what you mentioned, how long it's taken to even get to this point, what does this possibly, uh, this deal possibly happening mean for maybe the prospect of more release of more captives? Well, certainly, I hope that that's going to be the the next step. And uh, and within this agreement, from the text that I've seen so far, there is talk of releasing more in exchange for more. Again, this is where international involvement is so vital and so necessary. It shouldn't be the situation where it's just Palestinians versus Israelis, um, and that Palestinians have to uh, have to be pushing for for their prisoners to be released. There should be international involvement to end this system of military detention. Um, so. I'm certainly hopeful that that this will lead to more. But of course, it has to be coupled with a complete sensation, a complete ceasefire. Last month, uh, you were on Morning Edition and my colleague Michelle Martin asked you what the strategic purpose of Hamas's October 7th attack was. And you said the strategic purpose is freedom. How closer are Palestinians to achieving freedom today? Look, I think that the bigger issue is that people are now recognizing that you can't simply have a system in which uh, Israeli lives are prioritized over Palestinians, in which in which uh, Palestinians are forever denied their freedom, denied their security, and instead uh, instead place Israel superior. I think we're now. I think the world is now recognizing that this military occupation is not sustainable. It shouldn't be sustainable, and that they must actually bring it to an end. Diana Butu is a Palestinian human human rights lawyer and analyst. Thank you very much. Thank you. In the middle of the Thanksgiving travel rush, a crash along the U.S. border with Canada yesterday put people on alert from the White House to Ottawa. A speeding vehicle went airborne and plowed into a busy checkpoint at Niagara Falls, New York. The explosion that followed killed two people inside the vehicle, and it prompted authorities to shut down other New York border crossings and stop international flights from leaving or arriving at the closest airport in Buffalo. Then, hours later... At this time... There is no indication of a terrorist attack. Even so, New York Governor Kathy Hochul said the precautions were warranted. This is one of the busiest crossings, not just in Western New York, but along the entire U.S.-Canadian border. And it happens on the busiest travel day of the year. So naturally, in a time of heightened alert, everyone's spring into action. A security camera revealed a white vehicle speeding toward a line of booths at the checkpoint before hitting a low median and flying high into the air, twisting as it went. It crashed into a Customs and Border Patrol booth, and the car and the booth immediately exploded. Burst into flames. I saw the video of an airborne vehicle that was absolutely surreal. You actually had to look at it and say, was this generated by AI? Because it was so surreal to see. Despite the force of the crash and explosion, one person inside a border protection booth escaped serious harm. The booth literally protected that individual. They went to the hospital with minor injuries and have been released. The Rainbow Bridge crossing is still closed for an investigation, which the FBI has now turned over to local police. There's one situation where many parents can use a bit of help. How to soothe an upset child. Most parenting advice focuses largely on what to say to calm down a little one. But all around the world, many parents turn to another tactic. As NPR's Michaeline Duclef finds, this strategy 
is totally silent. In Korea, parents may call it yakson. In Taiwan, you can say shushu. And in Delhi, India, you may say malish. But in Latin America, parents may have the best name of all, piojito. I love piojito. I love <laughs> piojito. I asked the kids to give me piojito. I think it's my love language, piojito. That's Joe Grajeda. He's 40 years old, owns a coffee shop in Alpine, Texas, and is a good friend of mine. Grajeda was born and raised in northern Mexico. He says that in Spanish, piojito literally means the lice, or like a little lice. But the word also means gently caressing a person you love. To give piojito, Grajeda says, you scratch somebody's back or their head with the tip of your fingers very lightly. You do it very soft, and um, you kind of want to make the skin kind of crawl a little bit. What do you call that? Uh, like with goosebumps. goosebumps. Yes, like goosebumps. We call it chicken skin in Mexico. When Grajeda was a little boy, he fondly remembers his mom giving him piojito at night. She would start scratching my head, and that would make me go to sleep. Now, after decades of research, neuroscientists have started to understand why this type of touch, this tickly touch, is so effective at soothing and calming kids. Probably better than trying to console them with words. Ismail Abdul Sabor is a neurobiologist at Columbia University. He says that our skin contains special neurons to detect this particular touch, and they turn on only when you caress at a particular speed, when it's slow. So if you rush across the skin surface too quickly, that might actually be perceived as aversive. Back in February, Abdul Sabor and his colleagues published a landmark study in the journal Cell, showing how these neurons signal to the brain. In mice, they showed how these neurons in the skin basically have a, a dedicated highway, a neuronal highway, pathway to the brain's reward centers. So turning on these neurons makes the animal want to be touched like this more. Other research in humans shows that turning on these neurons feels good to most people. Reduces their pain perception, lowers their heart rate, and may release naturally occurring opioids inside their brain. Abdul Sabor says our bodies are wired up to receive this type of touch and calm down this way. Exactly, from people to animals, when they're sick or in pain, you you want to rub the area. You want to go to a loved one and get that social touch, that rub. You know. Together, the research indicates that these special nerves are part of a system inside of our skin that trigger the warm, peaceful feeling you have when you're with people who love you. Helena Hwasling is a neuroscientist at Zalgirinska University Hospital in Gothenburg, Sweden. She says this touch is critical for helping children feel safe. Being touched is also something that is just a basic need. It's like having had dinner. When you are hungry, you need to have that input in order for you to reach an equilibrium, good, steady state. She says that Western society has had a long history of telling parents not to touch their children. Psychologists and doctors have said that touching kids can weaken them or prevent them from becoming independent. But Wassling says, it "Turns out that the actual opposite is true. That children who get a lot of touch and, and closeness from their parents." Actually, are the ones that dare to go out and explore because they have a basic safety that they can rely on. They have a solid foundation. That's why Joe Grajeda over here in Alpine says he gives all his children piojito. 
As soon as they get close to me and I grab them, I hug them, and I start scratching their back. And they like to sit there and just kind of enjoy the moment. Knowing that all their needs are met and their dad loves them. I'm Michaeline Duclef for NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Thanksgiving day with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, of all the bathrooms in all the airports in the country, a restroom here on the East Coast has been named the very best this year. Find out which one coming coming up. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Home for Little Wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids. Because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org. Millions of Americans are on the road this Thanksgiving, gathering with family and friends for the annual feast. And that raises a question, sweet potato or pumpkin pie? Even though pumpkins were available in the South, sweet potato becomes the one of choice. And I think maybe that has something to do with the African presence. History, cultural ties, and pie. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies today. We'll have highs near 50, along with some strong winds. Tonight, still mostly clear as temperatures fall to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with highs in the upper 40s, sunny and in the 30s on Saturday. It's 42 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals, this year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. It's been half a century and Charlie Brown still has not figured it out. Do not trust Lucy. Come on, Charlie Brown. I'll hold the ball and you kick it. She wouldn't try to trick me on a traditional holiday. This is a scene from a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. The holiday special is celebrating its 50th anniversary. This time I'm going to kick that football clear to the moon. Isn't it peculiar, Charlie Brown, how some traditions just slowly fade away? Not this one. Uh, Charlie Brown Thanksgiving has been around since 1973. It's based on the classic characters from the comic strip Peanuts created by Charles Schultz. The plot of a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving is so fun and we can all relate to it even 50 years later. That is Gina Hunsinger, director of the Charles Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa, California. Peppermint Patty calls Charlie Brown and she invites herself over for Thanksgiving. I don't mind inviting myself over because I know you kind of like me, Chuck. See you soon, you sly devil. Oh, brother. Now what? Peppermint Patty's coming to Thanksgiving dinner. We won't even be home. Charles Schultz died in 2000, and last year, on what would have been his 100th birthday, I spoke with his widow, Jeannie Schultz, along with Gina Hunsinger of the Schultz Museum. Jeannie, how did Charles, or Sparky as he was known, how did he come up with the idea for Peanuts? I guess that he drew a cartoon called Little Folks. They were panel cartoons, and they were just little kid cartoons. 
one of the principals at Art Instruction School where he worked as a corrector of people's art lessons said, I think you should stick with the little kids. That's what he turned in to all the syndicates to see if he could get a contract. Little kids, no parents, simple, simple, simple. Yeah, that, I think that was the genius part of uh, Peanuts is that no parents, no grown-ups. It was just focused on the kids. Um, Gina, what do you think made Schultz different from other cartoonists? First of all, he was a genius. Um, he, We could relate to his strip. Like, we could see ourselves as Charlie Brown. You know, our kite's stuck in the tree again or the frustration of, you know, something happening. And also, Charles Schultz was the first one to really talk about emotions in the strip. So it changed the cartooning industry with his influence. He was so different than what was on the page when he first started. The other thing that he was different was that his aesthetic, his lines were minimal. He only put what was necessary to tell a story and it just jumped off the page compared to the cartoon strips of the time when he started in 1950. And you know what I like about uh, Peanuts is that being a kid is difficult because, you know, you're not fully formed yet. So you make mistakes, things that would seem like not a big deal to an adult are a really big right. deal to a little kid. Right. Kids are just messy. And I think that was something that really took hold. Yes. I, I feel like we've been listening to so many people talk around the centennial. And one of the cartoonists said, you know, people were trying to sell us things all the time. Like you're supposed to be happy and you're supposed to do this. And Charles Schultz sort of said it like it was. So people were like, yeah, I get these characters. I feel a part of this. They speak to me. And we have so many people who come into the museum and say, you know, when I was a little kid, I used to run home from school, run into my room, close the door and read those little peanut dollar paperbacks. And that was comforting to them. They just wanted to go home and suck their thumbs and read peanuts. Now, I want to play another clip from a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. Now, in this scene, Sally sees her big brother, Charlie, looking sad at the mailbox and asks him what's the matter. Holidays always depress me. I know what you mean. I went down to buy a turkey tree. And all they have are things for Christmas. For Christmas? Already? Anyway, why should I give thanks on Thanksgiving? What have I got to be thankful for? Charlie Brown Thanksgiving has been around since 1973. Jeannie, why do you think its appeal has stuck around for so long? I always say that Sparky expressed the human condition. He wrote about real emotions that kids are feeling. And it's always delivered with a little bit of humor. Anybody can read that strip in four seconds and get comfort from it because it talks about humanity. Gina, how would you define his legacy? Pervasive. Uh, I feel like he has influenced the world, you know, just from like security blanket in the dictionary to we have people from all over the world come and visit and they love peanuts. Jeannie, how come no one has taken over the Peanuts comic strip after Charles's death? Or, or is that something that maybe no one would want to have that job to fill those massive shoes? Well, that may be true, although I suspect there were people who would have liked to try. But Sparky 
in his contract said when he stopped drawing it, the strip would stop. What people see today are reruns. So you're seeing the same comic strips. And what amazes me is that it's still funny. You still want to read it right now. Snoopy's going to Needles or somewhere to find Spike. And it's just funny. Jeannie, it sounds like you still read the comic. Oh, I do. <laughs> I actually still read the newspapers. <laughs> I get a lot of fun out of looking through those when I do. Gina, when people visit uh, the Schultz Museum, what, what do they tell you is the reason why they come? What, why, why do you think people still want to have peanuts in their lives? The thing that people say the most to me is that they actually feel like there's some sort of comfort that they get from coming back to something that takes them back in time and it still makes them laugh. And I, I feel like they just want to come for a little comfort and happiness. That's Gina Hunsinger, the director of the Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa, California, and also Jeannie Schultz, the wife of Charles Schultz. Uh, Jeannie and Gina, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Abe. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up at 745 on WBOR's Morning Edition. Advice on what to do if current events like the Israel-Hamas war come up today as your family gathers around the dinner table for Thanksgiving. It's 729. There's nothing like live radio with the WBOR app. You can listen live on the road, on a walk, and in the kitchen. Get the free WBOR app today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Israel says a four-day pause in fighting with Hamas won't begin before tomorrow. The BBC's Ola Guerin says negotiations to implement the agreement are continuing amid conflicting reports on where things stand. Some suggestions that Hamas has not yet signed and ratified this agreement. Other claims that Hamas had not given a list to Israel of the people who would be released in the first group. And that was supposed to be part of the mechanism between the two sides. The agreement mediated by Qatar calls for Hamas to release 50 hostages taken during the militants' October 7th attack in southern Israel. In exchange, Israel is to release 150 Palestinians from Israeli jails. The National Retail Federation says a lot of people in the U.S. will be shopping for holiday gifts and decorations over the next few days. Here's NPR's Alina Selyuk. The vast majority of Americans say they plan to shop on Black Friday. Over the long weekend, if you think through Monday, we're actually expecting 182 million shoppers, and that's according to the National Retail Federation. In other words, that's more people shopping than ever. The group says the average shopper will likely spend about $875 on holiday gifts and decorations this year, slightly more than last year. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. 
Millions of people will celebrate Thanksgiving today, but for many indigenous people, it's the National Day of Mourning. There'll be a ceremony in March later today in Plymouth, beginning near Plymouth Rock. Jean-Luc Perrit is a member of United American Indians in New England, which sponsors the event. He says it's a chance to highlight the oppression indigenous peoples have experienced around the world. What we are doing is that we are coming together to challenge the systemic injustices that come in the forms of racism, settler colonialism, sexism, homophobia, and the profit-driven destruction of the earth. Speakers will include members of the Wampanoag tribes and indigenous people from around the world. State fire officials warn that house fires are more common today than on any other day of the year. That's because of all the Thanksgiving cooking. Massachusetts Fire Services spokesman Jake Wark recommends keeping your kitchen clean. Clean up those grease spills, grease and oil spills. Keep uh, your cooking area clear of anything that can burn, like food packaging or grocery bags, towels, oven mitts, things of that nature. Uh, Keep that stuff well away from your cooking surface. And if something does go wrong? For a fire on the stovetop that is a a pan maybe that's full of grease that's burning, uh, the easiest and safest thing to do is to slide a uh, lid or a cookie sheet uh, over that pan. What you really don't want to do is try to move that burning pan or douse it with water. Uh, You're much more likely to spread the flames and and, uh, confront an even bigger and more dangerous fire. There were more than 100 cooking-related fires statewide last Thanksgiving. A program that works to racially integrate public schools in greater Boston says it needs nearly $3 million in additional state funding. Officials with METCO say the increase would allow about 100 more students to participate in the program. Those students would be bused from their Boston neighborhoods to schools in the suburbs. METCO leaders tell the Boston Globe the boost in funding would also help cover rising costs due to inflation. It's 7.33. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Celtics beat the Milwaukee Bucks last night at the Garden. The final was 119 to 116. The Seas will visit the Orlando Magic tomorrow. The Bruins topped the Panthers 3 to 1 last night in South Florida. The Bees return home tomorrow to play the Detroit Red Wings. It's a great day for a Thanksgiving walk or a turkey trot. Temperatures will be near 50 today and it'll be sunny, although there will be some gusty winds. Tonight, upper 30s and mostly clear. Tomorrow, sunny again and upper 40s. It's 42 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. For most of us, banks are where we keep our checking accounts or where we go to get a mortgage or a car loan. But as we learned in the Great Depression, in the global financial crisis of the mid-2000s, and also with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank this past March, when banks get in trouble, the whole economy shakes. That's why the Federal Reserve and other banking regulators want big banks to hold bigger capital cushions so they're less likely to fail. Now, this proposal is drawing intense criticism from the banks. To explain what it's all about, we turn to David Wessel. He's director of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. So David, first tell us what exactly is bank capital? Bank capital is the amount of money that bank shareholders have invested in the business. It's a cushion that can absorb losses if borrowers don't pay back the loans, so banks have enough money to cover consumer deposits. If banks don't have enough capital when things go wrong, and they certainly didn't have enough back in 2007, then they either fail or get bailed out by the government, and the economy suffers because it takes time for the banks to return to health so they can lend again. All right, so that's bank capital. Uh, What's at stake then, not just for bank stockholders, but for all of us, the rest of us? The bankers tell us that if they're forced to have too much capital, if their government requires them to take out too much insurance, they'll end up lending less, and that'll hurt the economy. The rest of us, though, want banks to hold enough capital so they're unlikely to fail, not so much that we can't get loans, and that's a tricky balance. All right, so what exactly then are are federal regulators proposing now? Well, in the years following the global financial crisis, regulators made the banks hold more capital, and they're now proposing to make the 37 banks hold still more, about 16% on average, more for the very biggest banks. Now, the proposal is incredibly complicated. It fills... 316 pages of small type in the Federal Register. But basically, banks that have the riskiest portfolios of loans and securities would have to hold more capital. And the regulators want to make a lot of technical changes to the way the banks calculate the amount of capital they need to have, mainly relying less on internal bank models and more on standard models imposed by the regulators. And why aren't uh, the banks happy about this? Well, look, the more capital a bank has to hold, the harder it is for them to make money. So the big banks have launched an unusually public and aggressive campaign. Now, they know they're not going to win much support by talking about the impact this is going to have on their bottom lines. So they're focused on the impact this is going to have on the economy, on small businesses, on mortgage borrowers. It's amazing. They've launched websites with URLs like americanscantaffordit.com. And one political action committee siding with the banks even ran a TV ad on a Sunday NFL game saying that the capital rules raise costs to consumers. Now, proponents of the tougher capital rules, including the regulators, say, look, the banks are exaggerating this. The costs are modest compared to the benefits of reducing the risk of banking crisis that can have long lasting, really bad effects on the economy. So as I understand it, uh, capital requirements are made by the regulators, not by Congress, still though politics are definitely involved in this. So what's, uh, what's that like? Absolutely. The banks have really raised this to a political issue, and it's very polarized. On the Fed board, two of six governors voted against even putting the proposal out for comment. On the Federal Deposit Insurance Board, two of the five directors also voted against it. All of the no votes were from Republicans. All the Republicans on the Senate Banking Committee have signed a letter blasting the regulators. Democrats are split. Some have expressed reservations, but others, including the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, are standing behind the regulators. So what happens now? Well, the regulators are going to take comments until January of next year. Revisions are very likely tweaking some of the details and probably scaling back some of the most controversial elements. All right, that's David Wessel. He's director of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. David, thanks.
You're welcome. If you are one of the tens of millions of Americans traveling for the holidays this year, you'll be spending plenty of time at airports. Now, one in particular is receiving some high honors. The restrooms at Baltimore Washington International Airport were just declared the best in the business this year. WYPR's Scott Massioni took a trip to the Luz to see exactly what makes them so special for the 24 million people who go through that airport each year. BWI's bathrooms on Concourse B are brightly lit with natural light. They have lights above the stalls that tell you what you're occupied, and the stall doors reach all the way to the floor. We also put in sensors for our custodial staff that would actually tell them where we're running low on soap. Paul Schenk, BWI's chief engineer, says the toilet paper rolls have high-tech sensors too. And he's probably spent more time thinking about bathrooms in the last couple years than many of us will in our lives. Schenk and his team conducted surveys, talked to custodial staff, studied innovative restroom designs, and even thought through the best cleaning processes for BWI's $55 million bathroom overhaul. There are two national surveys said restrooms are the most important thing the passengers, which blows my mind. And another survey said it was the second most important. So restrooms are both the number one and number two most important thing for our traveling public. Paul's down with the potty humor, if you can't tell. And all that thought that he put into how we do our business, well, it won BWI the CentOS Award for America's Best Bathroom of 2023. That's a contest that's been going strong since 2002. Ten finalists are nominated for the best bathroom each year, and then voting's open to the general public, where hundreds of thousands of people chime in. Shank says what makes BWI's bathrooms so special is more than just technology. There's also ambiance. In BWI's lavatory, there's no noisy hair dryers, just the satisfying crisp pull of a paper towel. Then, of course, there's cleanliness. What we went with was all glass. It's an impervious surface. It's easy to disinfect, it's easy to clean, and it looks ultra-modern. It's bright, it's shiny. Shank and his team took convenience into account, too, considering people are juggling luggage and sometimes kids. Annette Parks and her husband are traveling with their two children. When you have toddlers, you have to, like, both fit into one stall. And opening the door to get out, usually you're both squeezing up the side of against a stall or bumping into the toilet as you open the door. But they found BWI's bathrooms to be a completely different experience. At the changing station, hand sanitizer, a sink right there, and a trash can literally right there. Parks wasn't the only one impressed. Grady Laura Monteroso is a student who frequently travels from Baltimore to Illinois. I guess it's more of like the lighting and the privacy you get. It's like really clean immediately as soon as you walk in, which is hard to say about a lot of airport bathrooms. So next time you're in BWI and looking for a quick pit stop or maybe even a little ambiance, don't skip the loo. For NPR News, I'm Scott Mascioni in Baltimore. Coming up later on All Things Considered, the writers and actors strikes are finally in the rearview mirror and Hollywood's revving up for the holidays. Our film critic Bob Mondello brings us a preview of the award contenders, comedies, musicals, and comic book spectaculars coming to theaters. To hear the story, listen to NPR on your phone, smart speaker, or on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. 
Speaking of airports, things at Logan are mostly running on time. FlightAware reports a dozen delayed flights at Logan and just one cancellation. On the roads, there are no delays right now on the Pike, 93, 95, or Route 3. And Amtrak reports no delays out of South Station. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, there's been a delay in the implementation of a deal that includes a four-day pause in fighting in Gaza. An Israeli official now says that won't happen until tomorrow at the earliest. Good weather today for those turkey trots, including the ones about to get underway in Wellesley, Salem, and Braintree. Sunny and windy, near 50. Clear skies in upper 30s tonight, then sunny and upper 40s tomorrow. A few clouds move in on Saturday, and it'll be much colder with temperatures only rising to the upper 30s. It's 42 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Massachusetts is one of the top states to work. That's according to a recent study by Peak Sales Recruiting. As WBUR's Ninjor and Wameka reports, this year the recruiting firm rated the Bay State as the third best state to work. The study analyzed job growth, wages, taxes, union representation, and commute times, among other measures. While traffic isn't the state's strong suit, Massachusetts scored well when it comes to wages. Nearby New Hampshire edged out Massachusetts and was ranked the second best state to work due to its wages and no sales tax. The study used data from the U.S. Census Bureau, the Tax Foundation, and MIT to come up with the rankings. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. The price of gas in Massachusetts keeps ticking down. AAA says the statewide average for regular grade is now $3.41 a gallon. That's down $0.04 in the last week and $0.38 cheaper than the same time last year. The highest average price in the state is on Nantucket. It's 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station... And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at mott.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. As family and friends gather around the table to celebrate Thanksgiving, it might feel impossible or really difficult not to discuss the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. So how should you wade into these conversations? Joining us now for some suggestions is John Delavolpe. He's the director of polling at the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics and focuses on young Americans' political beliefs. Now, John, you recently wrote about this and you use polling to kind of figure out exactly how different generations approach certain aspects of the conflict. So what's something that uh, Zoomers and Boomers can agree on? Because on the surface, it doesn't seem like Gen Z and baby Boomers have a lot of common ground. That's right. 61% in the Quinnipiac poll said they just want to avoid conversations about politics with friends and families over Thanksgiving. However, as you said, easier said than done. And if trying to find common ground, if the issues of the day come up, the best advice I have, especially across generational lines, is to talk about 
the humanitarian assistance. That is a subject where younger people and their parents and their grandparents can generally find some common ground. How do you do that, though? How do you shift from the more emotional parts of it to something that maybe doesn't seem like would be very emotional to talk about? Well, I think talking about what they're concerned about and the idea mm. that there are innocent civilians who are in need of humanitarian assistance on both sides of the border is something that really can try to diffuse the situation. Of course, you're not going to ever be able to avoid something with that crazy uncle necessarily on Thanksgiving. Yeah. But again, the purpose of my piece here is to say, if something happens, here's something that we can agree on and hopefully change the conversation to something you know, um, like the weather. What if things start to shift? What would be something that would give you red flags to think, okay, maybe we should stay away from this? I think the idea of, quote, choosing sides is something that is the huge red flag, and that's really the most divisive of points today. And I'm not talking about sides of Hamas versus Israel. I'm talking about the idea of, uh, of which side you're on, the Palestinian side or the Israeli side. Overwhelmingly, the parents and grandparents of Gen Zers, teenagers, folks in their 20s, overwhelmingly um, by factors of four or five X would say, I support the Israelis and not necessarily the Palestinians. Whereas for younger people, there is net support for quote, the Israeli side, but it's far more nuanced. Almost as many also indicate support for Palestinians, which is essentially saying both sides, they see the humanitarian crisis that is happening and affecting so many people in the Middle East right now. John, what if there's no way around it? And that is where this conversation is going around the dinner table. It can't get out of it. It's going to happen. From your experience, how should people handle these extremely difficult conversations? I think that it's going to be very difficult to convince someone with this kind of conversation within this environment of their side. And I would always go back to the way in which they see it, their experience, their values. But Again, you're not going to convince someone. I think moving it to things that we can agree on and perhaps have the conversation at a later point. We can agree on humanitarian assistance on both sides. We can agree on the freedom of speech. Um, both sides agree on that. And we can also agree that today and the next couple of days is not the best time to have this kind of conversation. John Della Volpe is a pollster and author of Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. John, thanks a lot. Thank you. This is NPR News. You're with WBMR on a Thursday. Coming up at 8.15 on Morning Edition, there's been a Detroit Lions game every Thanksgiving Day since 1934. This year, the NFL team is thankful for a chance to go to the Super Bowl. It's 7.50. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Landry and Arkari Rugs and Carpeting with a Black Friday event now through the 27th for all hand-woven rugs. Only online at LandryandArkari.com. Hi there, it's Margaret Lowe, the CEO of WBUR. This is the day when we all think about what we're thankful for. For me, the answer is easy. I'm thankful for you. For your trust in WBUR, for your time, I know how precious it is, and for your enduring support. Before I dash to put my first ever spatchcock turkey in the oven, I want to wish you and yours a happy Thanksgiving. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Israel is delaying a deal to exchange hostages held by Hamas for Palestinians held in Israeli prisons until at least tomorrow. New York's governor says there are no signs the car explosion that shut down several U.S.-Canada border crossings yesterday is related to terrorism. And the World Health Organization is asking China to share information about reports of an unusual number of respiratory illnesses affecting children. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Sunny, breezy, and near 50 today. Clear skies and upper 30s tonight. Sunny and upper 40s tomorrow. Colder on Saturday in the upper 30s, and we'll have a mix of sun and clouds. It's 42 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. Very few Indian tribes in the United States actually own all of their reservation land. For more than 40 years, a federal policy called allotment carved up most reservations into private parcels. Only a handful of tribes avoided this, and keeping their lands changed their futures. NPR's Anya Steinberg and Sequoia Carrillo went to the Red Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota for NPR's history podcast, Throughline. What's up, Red Lake? If you take a drive through Red Lake, you will notice that, you know, they have their own justice center. They have their own police force, tribal government complex. They have their own radio station. We were big fans of WRLN. A lot of the road signs on the reservation are in Ojibwe first and English second. There's even a fishery that uses traditional indigenous techniques. We actually got to see it and smell it in action. He just showed me the machine to descale. It's very, very cool. <laughs> in some parts of the reservation, people bury their dead in the front yard. This is Anton Troyer, author of the book Warrior Nation, a history of the Red Lake Ojibwe. Anton is a member of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe, and he grew up nearby. That is very different than you'll find in most parts of America. The reason Red Lake is so different from pretty much any reservation I've been to before is because of events that happened almost 150 years ago. It's June 29, 1889. Red Lake's seven hereditary chiefs are gathered in a tiny government school building to meet with a commission sent by the United States. Red Lakers still held more than three million acres of land, while most tribes in Minnesota held less than 100,000. And the U.S. wanted that land. On Red Lake's side, there was one man at the forefront of the negotiations. He was made by nature one of the greatest men in mind and body that I think I have ever seen. His name was Maidway Gnonand. Maidway Gnonand, or he who is spoken to, as he was known in English, was often described by settlers as the head chief at Red Lake. When he arrived at the 1889 negotiations, he was 82 years old, and he carried with him a lifetime of loss and upheaval, a lifetime of dealing with Americans. We wish that any land we possess should be not only for our own benefit, 
but for our grandchildren hereafter. He's facing off against the U.S. Chippewa Commission, a group of three men. One, a missionary. Two, a surgeon. And last but not least, their leader, Henry Rice. All that is desired by the government is that you will agree to what is best for yourselves. Henry Rice was a well-known early Minnesota politician, and he was deeply involved in the Indian business. Rice had negotiated treaties with groups of Ojibwe across Minnesota. And here he was, in 1889, to get the job done once again. They wanted everybody living at Red Lake to cede all of their land. And if they couldn't get them to do that? To at least get them to take allotment. Allotment was a federal policy that divided reservation land into privately owned parcels. After parcels were allotted to tribal members, the remaining land was opened up for sale to settlers, farmers, and businessmen. The policy was framed as a win-win. White Americans could get access to valuable timber and farmland, and Native people could own their own land, and a piece of the American dream. But Medway Ganonand wasn't buying it. Third Council at Red Lake. Wednesday, July 3rd, 1889. Medway Ganonand said, look. I wish to lay out a reservation here where we can remain with our bands forever. We don't want to give up anything. And he knew that there was no way for them to avoid giving up something. But they would not give up everything. I will never consent to the allotment plan. As the negotiations dragged on, Henry Rice began to understand that Red Lake wasn't budging. Fourth Council at Red Lake, July 4th. Fifth Council at Red Lake, July 5th. Sixth Council at Red Lake, July 6th, 1889. They were not going to get Red Lakers to move off this land. You must not expect to keep all your reservation. It is not greediness that influences us. And they actually had a map laid out on the table and the tribal members drew lines around the lake and they articulated in the agreement that all of the land around both Upper and Lower Red Lake and a mile of land around the lakeshore on all sides would be part of the reservation. So that was the understanding. The commissioners and the hereditary chiefs reached a deal. Red Lake would cede millions of acres of land, but in exchange, the reservation would not be allotted. This moment was the fork in the road. It's when Red Lake's path diverges from the vast majority of reservations in the United States. What happened next, we don't have great documentation for. But afterwards, Henry Rice took off. He left Red Lake with the signed agreement and the map in hand. Eventually made his way to Washington, D.C., and there was a map submitted. Either Henry Rice took the map he had in front of the natives, ripped it up, and submitted a different map, or submitted the map that was agreed to, and somebody else came in and swapped it out. A corner was sliced off the reservation map. Whether or not it was by accident, we'll never know. Major Kanonen and the hereditary chiefs left the negotiation thinking they had kept the most important parts of their land, Upper and Lower Red Lake, and the forests around it. By the time they found out it had been stolen, it was too late. Since the moment Red Lake's leaders discovered the fraud, 
They've been adamant about getting it back. That was Anya Steinberg and Sequoia Carrillo for NPR's History Podcast Throughline. And you can listen to more on the topic wherever you get your podcasts. This story from Throughline comes from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. Near 50 and sunny today with some gusty winds, upper 30s and clear skies tonight. It's 42 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Officials say there are no signs that a fiery car crash that closed several U.S.-Canada border crossings yesterday is related to terrorism. It's Thursday, November 23rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we'll go to Atlanta, where protests are growing more intense over a police training facility under construction. Also this hour, Turkey isn't just for Thanksgiving, it's also become a big deal in Taiwan, in part because of that country's connections to the U.S. Plus, this year's Black Friday is expected to set another shopping record, but more Americans may be buying on credit. And some recommendations on what to watch on TV as you're recovering from the Thanksgiving meal. In sports, Celtics and Bruins win, sunny and near 50 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. A temporary pause in fighting is expected to begin soon in Gaza, but there are reports of new air and missile strikes along Israel's northern border with Lebanon. NPR's Brian Mann reports the son of one of Hezbollah's leaders was killed yesterday by an Israeli strike. Hezbollah, the Lebanese militia backed by Iran, confirmed that Abbas Rad, the son of one of the group's leaders, was killed Wednesday by an Israeli airstrike. Four other Hezbollah members also died. Hezbollah said in a statement it fired rockets at numerous Israeli military targets hitting as far as nine kilometers inside Israel. Israel's military, meanwhile, says its fighter jets targeted Hezbollah units and an Israeli tank also fired on a military post across the border. Some Israeli communities in the north have been evacuated because of the increased violence. This comes as Israel and the Palestinian group Hamas are preparing for a four-day pause in the war inside Gaza. A hostage and prisoner exchange is expected to begin Friday. Brian Mann, NPR News, Tel Aviv. A state of emergency is in effect for a county in southeastern Kentucky after a freight train derailment yesterday. Stan Ingold with member station WEKU reports more than a dozen rail cars left the tracks north of Livingston, triggering a chemical spill. In a statement, CSX officials said one member of a two-person crew was treated for a minor injury. The statement referred to two of the cars that left the tracks as molten sulfur cars and said that they were breached. 
CSX says that it's working with Rockcastle County first responders and teams are being deployed to assist affected residents. The governor's executive order allows the state to activate resources including Kentucky Emergency Management and the Kentucky National Guard. Response efforts for the incident are ongoing and local officials are encouraging those in the town of Livingston to evacuate. For NPR News, I'm Stan Ingold in Richmond, Kentucky. An investigation is underway into a car crash and explosion at the U.S.-Canadian border yesterday. The vehicle was speeding in upstate New York when it flew over a fence and slammed into a security station at a bridge that connects the U.S. and Canada. New York Governor Kathy Hochul says officials have so far ruled out terrorism. We've been on heightened alert since October 7th. That's why it's so important for me to stand here and tell the world based on what we know at this moment And again, anything can change. There is no sign of terrorist activity with respect to this crash. The crash killed two people. The FBI says a surge revealed no explosive materials and no terrorism nexus was identified. The White House says the Department of Homeland Security is in close contact with its Canadian counterparts. This is NPR News in Washington. The Biden administration is asking a federal judge to reject a legal challenge to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point's consideration of race and admissions. The Department of Justice argues that diversity in the Army remains key to national security. Earlier this year, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down race-conscious admissions policies at colleges and universities. A new study shows that strong friendships help older adults stay physically and mentally healthier. But as NPR's Ritu Chatterjee reports, good friends can also have a bad influence. The study authors wanted to know whether having strong friendships had an impact on the health of older adults. So they looked at data on nearly 13,000 people 50 years and older from the health and retirement study, which spanned across eight years. They found that having stronger friendships in this age group predicted better health and lower risks of dying over the duration of the study. Those with stronger friends were 9% more likely to exercise and had a 19% lower chance of having a stroke. This group also had a 17% lower chance of being depressed. The scientists also found that good friends can have a bad influence on one's health by making it more likely that someone will smoke. The findings were published in Epidemiology and Psychiatry Sciences. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. Stocks across Asia traded mostly higher today. Markets in China and Hong Kong posted gains. Wall Street is closed for Thanksgiving. Trading resumes tomorrow. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Pine Street Inn in Boston is preparing nearly 2,000 meals for those in need this Thanksgiving. Barbara Trevison is a spokesperson for Pine Street. She says several hundred volunteers take over the adult shelter's kitchen for a week to get the food ready. About 125 turkeys, 280 pounds of cranberry sauce, 1,000 pounds of mashed potatoes, 50 gallons of gravy, 500 pounds of fruit salad, and um, about 1,200 mini pies. She says she expects demand to be high this year because of the rising rents in the area and the recent arrival of migrants from Haiti and Venezuela. The meal gets underway at 1130. 
An indigenous group from the South Shore is looking for federal recognition. The Herring Pond tribe is part of the Wampanoag Nation. There are about 200 members. Tribal leaders tell the Boston Globe that getting federal recognition will allow them to get federal funds for help with housing and cultural programming. Doctors are calling for more treatment options following the release of new data that highlight rising overdose deaths during pregnancy and in the year after childbirth. More now from WBUR's Martha Biebinger. A study from the National Institute on Drug Abuse says pregnant people addicted to opioids may be denied treatment or not seek it out of fear they'll be charged and lose their baby. Mass General's Dr. Davida Schiff says creating safe spaces for these patients and removing legal threats could save lives. Pregnancy is a motivating time for women to make positive choices to reduce the use of licit and illicit substances and is a really important time to engage people in care. Schiff is lobbying to change a law that discourages use of addiction medicine. That law requires reporting newborns with traces of these drugs to investigators who may place the baby in foster care. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AMS and the Weather Channel with the power of precipitation. New England weather is predictably unpredictable. Learn how water vapor affects our local weather with scientists from Brown, Princeton, and the Weather Channel, December 1st at City Space. Delicious food and drinks included. Tickets at itowardsthesky.com. The Bruins ended their brief Florida road trip with a win last night. They beat the Panthers 3-1. The Bees will host the Detroit Red Wings tomorrow. The Celtics topped the Milwaukee Bucks 119-116 last night at the Garden. The Seas will visit the Orlando Magic tomorrow. Sunny today, it'll be near 50, clear overnight with temperatures in the 30s, mostly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s, sunny on Saturday and in the 30s. It's 43 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Ami Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Israel says the deal to implement a four-day pause in fighting in Gaza has been delayed until Friday at the earliest. So that means Israel continues to strike Gaza in an attempt to destroy Hamas, and families on both sides have to wait to bring their loved ones home. We're joined now by NPR's Lauren Freyer in Ramallah in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Uh, Lauren, what's holding up this agreement? Well, Israel's national security advisor says talks with Hamas are still progressing and that the release of hostages held in Gaza and Palestinian detainees held in Israel will not take place, as you mentioned, before tomorrow. He didn't give an explanation for the delay. The deal, as we understand it, is this. A four-day pause in fighting, 50 hostages released by Hamas in stages, like one batch per day, and 150 Palestinian prisoners and detainees released from jails in Israel. Now, just to note, This isn't a published document, so we're relying on both sides to describe what they have agreed on, and there could be discrepancies. For example, last night in a speech, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the International Committee for the Red Cross will visit all of the hostages inside Gaza and deliver medicine. But today, a Red Cross spokesperson told me the group isn't aware of any such agreement to do that. It's ready to do so if called upon, though. So that that means it's got to be pretty stressful for a lot of people. Um, What kind of things are, are people saying? 
Yeah, I mean, for families of hostages kidnapped in Israel on October 7th, they're like on tenterhooks waiting for this release. Here's a man named Nimrod Shakar. My colleague Brian Mann met him in a Tel Aviv square where protesters have gathered. And he's angry at the Netanyahu government for not getting a deal to free all of the roughly 240 hostages. The majority of the Israelis will demand this from our government, and we don't care what are the means to get this deal. Meanwhile, here in the West Bank, I've been meeting families of some of those 150 Palestinian prisoners and detainees who are slated for release. Most of them are from the West Bank and Jerusalem. They're mostly teenage boys, a few teenage girls, and several dozen adult women, some of whom have been in Israeli jails for years. But any homecoming preparations here are really muted because of the toll that this war has taken just south of here in Gaza. I spoke this morning with a woman named Sahar Hantuli, She's a French and English teacher here in Ramallah, and she said she's been in agony. Because our people in Gaza, they are suffering from now 47 days. They are martyrs there physically, and we are martyrs here psychologically. Meanwhile, an Israeli military spokesperson says forces continue to bomb Gaza, some 300 targets there in the past 24 hours. He says they're using ground forces, drones, and precision-guided missiles. Israel says this is all aimed at destroying Hamas. Lauren, this deal isn't in trouble, is it? I mean, it's hard to tell. Like, it's not unusual for temporary ceasefires to be delayed or to falter once they do start. There are a lot of details to work out. As I mentioned, the discrepancy over what Netanyahu said last night and what the Red Cross is saying today. I mean, remember that the Hamas leadership is still believed to be underground, in tunnels under Gaza. And negotiators that I've spoken with have told me this requires passing notes, like down through the tunnels, then up to Gaza. Uh, above ground out to Egypt um, and to negotiators in Qatar and the U.S. and in Israel. And so not only did it take time to get this deal, weeks of negotiations, but it takes time to negotiate the implementation of all of the details to work it out. That's NPR's Lauren Freyer. Lauren, thanks. You're welcome. In Atlanta, a new police training facility is being built on 85 acres of wooded land. Protesters have long railed against the plan. More than 60 people have been arrested this year during protests. Some have been violent, and some protesters are now charged with racketeering. Some are also facing domestic terrorism and money laundering charges. Atlanta's mayor and Georgia's governor still support the training facility, and a petition to put the training center's funding on the ballot is stalled in court. We're joined now by Shemaine Cruz of WABE in Atlanta, who's been following this story. So what exactly do the protesters want and why? Well, a, for more than two years now, protesters, and that includes environmentalists and anti-police groups, they've been saying that they fear the state of the art facility will further militarize police from around the country who come to train here. And they say that construction is going to exacerbate environmental damage in this low-income majority black area. So while you have some groups who say that the facility should just be built somewhere else where it isn't in people's backyards and destroying valuable green space in the community, you also have some people who don't want this facility to be built at all. And protests have only intensified and they gained national attention after state troopers shot and killed a protester at the site in January. 
And then recently, a special prosecutor announced that he would not be bringing charges against those officers involved. He said that he found their use of deadly force was objectively reasonable. And this comes, as he said earlier, while dozens of protesters are facing racketeering and domestic terrorism charges. So protesters have also been calling on those to be dropped. Yeah, and despite all this, the mayor of Atlanta, the governor of Georgia, they've still stood behind the project. Uh, Why is that? City officials say the training center is needed to improve things like de-escalation training, to boost morale, and to recruit and retain more officers. The Atlanta Police Department is still about 500 officers short. And so quite frankly, they say that they are simply spending too much money right now having to rent other facilities or that they're training in parking lots of old shopping centers or abandoned schools with mold and other problems. Uh, The city also already owns this land where the center is being built. And once it's completed, it's supposed to have like walking trails for the community and a place for them to keep their horses and canines, as well as a mock city where officers can train on how to conduct raids, which is why protesters call this project Cop City. Um, Just last week, protesters set several cement trucks on fire owned by a company working on the project. But Atlanta Police Chief Darren Shearbaum said that despite this type of action, the project is still on track to be completed in December of next year. I saw that organizers delivered uh, 116,000 signatures to City Hall to get a rare ballot measure started that would ask Atlanta voters to weigh in on whether they want the facility. Where does that stand? Well, yes, they submitted the signatures to City Hall in late September, but they've just been sitting there ever since because almost immediately city officials refuse to begin verifying them until a judge rules on whether they're even valid. So there's a court hearing scheduled for next month where we should find out more. That's Shemaine Cruz with WABE. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Of all the Thanksgiving traditions, there's one in Detroit that's been a constant for decades, a heaping helping of hapless Lions football. The Detroit Lions have played on Thanksgiving Day since 1934, and they're about to play the Packers in the first of three NFL games today. The Lions have struggled for a long time, but not this year. They're really good this year. They've got a realistic chance to reach the Super Bowl, and that gives Detroit fans something to be extra thankful for. Quinn Kleinfelter reports from member station W. D-E-T. Thousands of people draped in Lions jerseys, jackets, and hard hats painted like the team's helmet packed parking lots outside Detroit Stadium before a recent home game. For fan Emily Fricken, the Thanksgiving Day game to her means football, family, and hopefully not fumbling the dinner made among fellow tailgaters. First time my dad tried deep frying a turkey, it went terribly, terribly wrong. Blowing up like a little bit of the deep fryer, but every single Thanksgiving we were here at the crack of dawn, deep frying a turkey, and you know, it's just been in my blood ever since I've been little. B.J. Zelenek says generations of families have grown up with a love for Lions Thanksgiving Day football. We've had uh, our grandkids dress up as little turkeys. We've also done the parade. Detroit's Thanksgiving Day parade draws tens of thousands to the city's downtown. But Pro Football Hall of Fame historian John Kendall says the NFL was hard-pressed to create the same interest in the Thanksgiving Day games until radio executive George Richards bought the team in 1934 
and created a network of 90 stations to broadcast the holiday contest. What he did during this time frame and that Thanksgiving Day game you know, really had an impact on the league as a whole and its growth into what it is today. Yet the Lions often struggled and have not won a playoff game since 1991. The team hit rock bottom in 2008. The Detroit Lions have completed the first non-winning season of a 16-game schedule in NFL history. Some NFL owners unsuccessfully lobbied to take the Thanksgiving Day game away from Detroit, arguing the Lions' typically poor performance was a bad look for the league. The Lions roared back about three years ago when former player Dan Campbell became head coach. He famously pledged to develop a team as tough as its city, one that would rise up every time it was knocked down and, quote, bite a kneecap on the way. A team, Campbell says, that's worthy of the Thanksgiving Day showcase. Everybody's watching, all your family, all your friends, and this is the type of game, man, you come out of and you got somebody you went to school with in second grade who's texting you, you know, and family member, everything um, is special. That sentiment echoes inside the Lions locker room. Offensive lineman Panay Sewell says the tradition reached him even while growing up in American Samoa. Kind of depend on whether my dad knew there was a game on and he could uh, turn on the antennas and stuff like that. But no, we'd actually just have our own type of football game in the backyard. Let's go Lions! Let's go Lions! Back among the tailgaters outside Detroit Stadium, Emily Fricken smiles at the sense of hope she feels among Lions fans now. Frickin says it's what her late father always wanted to be part of. And she says, in a way, he is. So I have his team ring and his wedding ring on the, my necklace right now. He wanted to see a, a Lions Super Bowl. So I'm confident that will happen soon in my lifetime. She says perhaps that would also start a new NFL tradition, a perennial championship contender here. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thanksgiving with WBMR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, this year's Black Friday is, is expected to set record sales, even though most U.S. shoppers say the day is overhyped and more Americans are falling behind on credit card bills. It's 820. Millions of Americans are on the road this Thanksgiving, gathering with family and friends for the annual feast. And that raises a question, sweet potato or pumpkin pie? Even though pumpkins were available in the South, sweet potato becomes the one of choice. And I think maybe that has something to do with the African presence. History, cultural ties, and pie. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Clear skies today will have highs near 50, along with some strong winds, so keep that in mind if you're heading out to the turkey trots beginning in Newburyport and over in Newton. Tonight, still mostly clear as temperatures fall to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with highs in the upper 40s. Sunny and only in the 30s on Saturday. It's 43 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals, 
This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez. It wouldn't be Thanksgiving on Morning Edition without longtime classical music commentator Miles Hoffman. Hoffman died earlier this year of leukemia. He was 71 years old. Hoffman had an infectious love of classical music and was fond of dishing up musical puns for his Thanksgiving conversations with Morning Edition host Renee Montaigne. Topics included musical leftovers, Thanksgiving drumsticks, and plucking. Hoffman's commentaries were funny and insightful. They were also warm and comforting, just like the best Thanksgiving traditions. Here he is in 2004 talking with Renee about musical turkeys, pieces composers wish they'd never cooked up. First, Miles, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Renee. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. Since uh, we have, as we said, we're on the subject, Mm -hmm. um, have all composers, even the geniuses among them, written a turkey or two? Well, I think so. You know, I think one of the ways you judge a composer's stature, how great the composer is, is uh, in a sense by the batting average, the ratio of great pieces to turkeys. And among the great composers, that ratio is very, very high. There's an interesting example. A very, very familiar piece to American audiences is Aaron Copland's Fanfare for the Common Man. This is a great fanfare. He wrote it in the 40s, and then he incorporated it into his third symphony. But he wrote a couple of other fanfares, too, that I think remain in the justly neglected category. You know, call it what you want. It's I don't think that's going to make the top 10 anytime soon, or the top 40, or the top 100. Is there any relationship? Would a composer follow uh, a less good piece with a masterpiece? I think it depends. I think that great composers have just as often followed masterpieces with other masterpieces. But there is, Renee, a very famous example of, of a great piece following a, a clunker. Beethoven composed a piece. It's listed as Opus 91 and it's called Wellington's Victory. It was intended to commemorate Wellington's victory at the Battle of Vitoria in Spain over Napoleon's army. And what did it share the program with, this Opus 91 clunker? It shared the program with Opus 92, which is the Seventh Symphony of Beethoven, generally acknowledged as just one of the greatest pieces ever written. One might think that a not-so-great work wouldn't be available as a recording. Well, (laughs) it's available because, first of all, it's a curiosity. If you just listen to the beginning of Wellington's victory, I don't know how long it lasts. There's this sort of inane and insane drumbeat thing that goes on in the beginning. I guess it's supposed to announce the arrival of the soldiers. Did he, in his day, did he know it? Did he hear it and say, oh, whoa, what have I done? Well, I think so. I mean, he he wasn't exactly proud of this 
piece. As a matter of fact, I've read at least one historical account that says he was disgusted that the public really went for this piece. But I, I think composers generally know. Some composers are tougher on themselves than others. Some composers have written potboilers and written pieces for commercial purposes, and they just crank them out and they don't worry about it. Others, very harsh in their self-judgment. I think of Johannes Brahms. His solution was to roast his turkeys, Rene. He just burned them. <laughs> if he, <laughs> When he wrote a piece that he thought wasn't up to his usual standards, he burned it. And so many, many pieces by Brahms are lost to posterity because he thought they were turkeys. Let's talk about the, the reverse of that. Are there also sort of truly delectable works that were thought in their day to be turkeys? Oh, yeah, that happens a lot and has happened. There was a very famous, very powerful critic in Vienna in the mid-19th century. His name was Eduard Hanslick. And after hearing the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto for the first time, this is what he wrote. He wrote, The violin is no longer played. It is torn asunder. It is beaten black and blue. We see wild and vulgar faces. We hear curses. We smell bad brandy. Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto brings us for the first time the horrid idea that there may be music that stinks in the ear. This is, so how's that for a critical... And, and writing. Yeah, and Tchaikovsky remembered that review word for word for his entire life. But, I mean, this is the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, which is a greatly beloved and wonderful piece. go from something that the critics hate or is thought to be awful to something that is grows to be cherished? Well, that's a very interesting question. First of all, critics can be wrong. And, and it, with the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, by the way, the verdict wasn't unanimous, but there was some really strong reaction against it. But what you also have is you have this very interesting working of history where a general consensus over time develops. And it's a consensus that's made from a combination, really, of many experts over time and the opinion of the public. And this consensus, Renee, really is usually quite reliable. And in fact, throughout history, most of the pieces that we now think of as great pieces, it didn't take too long for them to be recognized. Whereas if you know, a piece has had 75 or 85 years and it's been around for that long, for three quarters of a century, and it hasn't caught on, chances are it's not going to catch on, and there's probably a good reason it's not going to catch on. Miles Hoffman is violist and artistic director of the American Chamber Players and author of the NPR Classical Music Companion. And Miles, what, what will you be listening to as you feast on a turkey, I'm guessing? I hope it's turkey. I will mainly be listening to the sound of more stuffing being scooped onto the plate. That's what I'll be. I'll be listening to earthy sounds like that. <laughs> onto your plate. Onto my plate. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you have a good meal. You too, Miles. Thanks. That was Morning Edition's Renee Montaigne, along with classical music commentator Miles Hoffman, who died earlier this year. Hoffman was 71 years old. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition. NPR critic Eric Deggins tells us what Apple TV has to offer as you consider your streaming options for this Thanksgiving holiday weekend. It's 8.29. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Israel says a four-day pause in fighting with Hamas won't begin before tomorrow. Negotiations on implementing the agreement are continuing. Until then, the war in Gaza goes on, says Peter Lerner with the Israeli Defense Forces. Once we receive the instruction from the government to hold our fire, we will do so. We've not received that instruction as yet. The deal calls for Hamas to begin releasing 50 hostages and for Israel to free 150 Palestinians from Israeli jails. Rescue teams in India are still trying to reach 41 men trapped by a tunnel cave-in. NPR's Dia Hadid has more. Rescue officials earlier said they were in the final stretch of drilling a tunnel through the mountain, with just a few feet left to reach the trapped men. Yashoda Negi, whose husband is trapped inside, said he told her by phone that he'd be out by evening. But rescuers hit a new snag. Blades of the drilling machine were damaged and new special cutters had to be ordered in. Albert Dix is a tunnelling expert at the scene. Now the situation here uh, has deteriorated through the night and uh, we're, we're doing some workarounds at the moment. We're balancing the risk of a further avalanche within the tunnel, so we're trying to keep everybody safe. This comes after multiple attempts already stalled to bring the men out. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Mumbai. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Wampanoag tribe is helping Macy's represent indigenous culture in its annual Thanksgiving Day Parade. Ten members of the tribe will be featured on a float in the parade today wearing traditional clothing. Tribe member Siobhan Brown says it's the third year that the tribe has helped with the parade. One goal is to counter the usual mythology around the first Thanksgiving. For example, the feast was probably not an unusual occurrence in those days. I think we can safely say that feasting was a normalized practice in Wampanoag communities. So coming together and sharing food was was normal. We were just being ourselves. This year, Macy's decided to remove the pilgrim hat from the giant balloon turkey after the tribe suggested it. A lot of people are up early to start cooking Thanksgiving dinner, and there's a good chance many families will have a dog or other pet nearby, hoping to get their share of table scraps. WBUR's Stevie Chapman explains what you can do to make sure your pet doesn't overindulge. Cooked turkey is generally safe to give your pet over the holiday, but local veterinarians say it's best to avoid bones, including cooked ones. The last place you want to be is an emergency room with your pet over a holiday weekend. Susan Obel is the director of internal medicine at Angel Animal Medical Center in Boston. She says even safe foods are best shared with pets in moderation. What seems like a small bite for you, if your dog only weighs 15 pounds, that is just such a a tiny little stomach. So really a morsel here and there is plenty. Obel says you should also set guidelines for any guests you have over so they know if and when it's okay to give your pet a treat. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. Students at Bunker Hill Community College will soon have an easier path to pursuing a four-year degree at UMass Lowell. Administrators finalized an agreement yesterday to allow students to seamlessly transfer credits between the two schools. Leaders with the colleges say it'll make it easier for Bunker Hill students to pursue a bachelor's degree program once they earn their associate's degree. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. 
Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts tomorrow. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Celtics won last night's matchup against a big Eastern Conference rival. They beat the Milwaukee Bucks 119-116 at the Garden. The Seas will visit the Orlando Magic tomorrow. The Bruins beat the Panthers 3-1 last night in South Florida. The Bees return home tomorrow to skate with the Detroit Red Wings. It's a great day for a Thanksgiving walk or a turkey trot, maybe the one starting in a half hour in Somerville and Franklin Park. Temperatures will be near 50 today and it'll be sunny, although there will be some gusty winds. Tonight, upper 30s and mostly clear. Tomorrow, sunny again and upper 40s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez. Maybe you roll your eyes when you hear about Black Friday, and lots of people think it's overhyped, but it still is the busiest shopping day of the year as it kicks off the holiday shopping season. So what are we buying and how can we afford it? NPR's Alina Selyuk is here. Should we be expecting massive crowds, Alina? (laughs) Should I stay home? What should I do? Um, That is your personal choice, but I do think you should expect a fair bit of crowds. Definitely a lot of folks shopping online. Um, The vast majority of Americans say they plan to shop on Black Friday. Over the long weekend, if you think through Monday, we're actually expecting 182 million shoppers, and that's according to the National Retail Federation. In other words, that's more people shopping than ever between now and Cyber Monday, which means I get to sound like a broken record because (laughs) I seem to say this every year. But this holiday, we're on track to set a shopping record. Retailers are forecasting that spending will grow. It will grow a bit slower than we saw during the pandemic boom, but in line with the decade prior. And an average shopping budget, according to the National Retail Federation, is around $875. That's for gifts, decorations, other holiday stuff, and that's slightly more than last year. All right. So typically around this time, Alina, my eyes and desire are bigger than my budget. Um, (laughs) Any great deals out there? You know, these are the best prices of the year. That is why people roll their eyes and still shop. Um, The last couple of years, we did see inflation, higher prices, put a damper on holiday discounts. But I've got good news for you this year. Adobe Analytics, which tracks online prices, is predicting that we will hit a high mark on deals. They're saying discounts will be as high as 35% off between now in Cyber Monday, and as high as 16% off in the weeks to follow. All right, so what am I getting in debt for? Um, I think probably a lot of classics. If you're like other folks in this country, you might be buying lots of clothes and toys. Those are the top. Toys. Mm. Yes, <laughs> me. That's me on toys. Most popular ones are Legos, Hot oh. Wheels, cars, Barbies, other dolls. Lots of nostalgia for us yeah. adults out there. And there is a new theme this year. Maybe this one's for you. Um, a record number of folks are saying they're planning to splurge on personal care items like makeup, beauty, other personal care stuff. And I do want to give a shout out to gift cards. They're a popular gift. If you've ever felt bad about buying one, I know I 
always do. Well, surveys every year find that gift cards are the most common thing people say they actually want to receive. And slightly more personal than, than just cash, I think. I, <laughs> just a little bit. Just yeah, one step up from that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, Alina, are our wallets ready for all this? Um, you know, shoppers all year have been saying that they are tightening their belts. Uh, we're talking about inflation, prioritizing food and necessities. But we've also seen people, you know, they're still traveling. They're eating out a lot. And there is, I think, a high chance folks will feel like, you know, tis the season to splurge and celebrate. I talked to Katie Thomas. She runs the Carney Consumer Institute. It's a think tank inside the consulting firm Carney. And here's what she said. I do think ultimately people will still spend. People are employed. Wages are good. If they're working, they feel like they can buy gifts. She's mentioning their unemployment remains near record lows. Wages have been growing. Also, inflation has cooled off and some prices are actually declining. But there is another side of the story, which is that we're shopping a lot on credit. More people are starting to fall behind on credit card bills, especially folks in their 30s. And so Thomas suspects lots of people will spend through the holidays and face the consequences in 2024. Yeah, that's next year. That's NPR's Alina Seljuk. Alina, thanks. Thank you. Turkey. Like it or not, lots of us eat it here in the U.S. every Thanksgiving. The bird is a popular dish in Taiwan as well, though it's cooked a little differently. NPR's Emily Fang gave it a try. Yang Pianghua has been working around turkeys for his entire life. His father first began raising them in the 1970s in Taiwan's Jiayi County. The males have these bright blue heads and fleshy snoods. Yes, they're called snoods that droop from their beaks. And Mr. Yang explains the longest snoods denote the alpha males. Turkeys are native to North America, but they've been on Taiwan since the 17th century, brought over by the Dutch, who briefly colonized the island. But turkeys didn't take off in Taiwan until the 20th century, as living standards improved. Turkey was even once a source of tension with the U.S., Yan Gaojin, the chair of Taiwan's ROC Turkey Raising Association, an industry group for breeders, explains. Because of a U.S.-Taiwan trade agreement in the 1970s, Taiwan once opened its market to American turkey meat, which had a big impact on local farmers. Local farmers protested, U.S. turkey meat imports stopped. But American white feather turkeys are still the dominant breed on the island. How they're raised and prepped is thoroughly Taiwanese, though, per Mr. Yang. He professionally roasts turkeys for local clients. I roast the turkeys like Chinese roast duck. In the U.S., you bake a turkey in an oven on a tray. I hang my turkeys inside the oven so they heat evenly. And he says he will only use Taiwan-raised turkeys, which he says have firmer flesh and smell better. Mr. Yang's turkey is an exception, though. Most turkey in Taiwan is not roasted whole. It's most commonly consumed chopped up into succulent morsels and scattered across chewy, short-grained rice. The dish is called jiayi turkey rice. It's inspired by a similar popular dish with pork. I met turkey rice maestro Liu Zhongyuan to learn more at his restaurant Liu Li Zhang, a shop his father began more than 50 years ago. 
The dish has become a classic in Taiwan. And Mr. Liu says turkey is much healthier for you than pork. He says he goes to the hospital every month and comes back with a clean bill of health each time. And he says Americans have been cooking turkey wrong this entire time. Turkey should not be baked, he emphasizes. It must be slowly boiled or steamed to lock in the juices. Roasting a bird can make its meat really dry, he says. His turkey is chewy and moist. Mr. Liu swears by using only the flesh of male turkeys. He claims it's got a better texture and is less fatty. It's then drizzled with soy sauce and rendered turkey fat. And at Mr. Liu's restaurant, it's also topped with crispy fried shallots and pickles. The combination totally works, and I wasn't the only one who thought so. Those are my parents. They happened to be visiting Taiwan for the first time ever, and they loved it. So much so that Jiayi turkey rice might be what we're having for our Thanksgiving dinner, too. Emily Fang, NPR News, Jiayi, Taiwan. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report asks whether the Netherlands may be heading toward its own version of Brexit after voters there elected a far-right populist to lead the government. A sunny and windy Thanksgiving day today, near 50, clear skies in upper 30s tonight, then sunny in upper 40s tomorrow. A few clouds move in on Saturday, and it'll be much colder, with temperatures only rising to the upper 30s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. As it gets colder outside, home heating expenses are front of mind for many people. The price of energy, including natural gas, electricity, and fuel oil, is cheaper than it was at this time last year. But as WBUR's Miriam Wasser explains, what your monthly bill looks like could depend a lot on the weather. Dennis Wamstead is an energy analyst at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. He says energy prices were sky high last winter, thanks largely to the fallout from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This year, prices have gone not completely back to where they were before, but they are down significantly from where they were last year. So going into this winter, things look better for consumers in New England, he says. But better is a hard thing to forecast three months in advance because if it's an extremely cold winter, then prices are likely to go up. People who heat with fuel oil or propane are most affected by a cold snap-related price spike. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Members of a union representing more than 12,000 janitors in Massachusetts and Rhode Island are approving a new contract. The four-year deal includes paid time off and additional full-time positions. About three-quarters of the workforce will get a more than 18 percent pay bump over the life of the contract. The union says that's the largest wage increase it's ever negotiated. It's a 45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. 
committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. In the new Apple TV Plus series, Monarch Legacy of Monsters, Kurt Russell plays a retired military officer who co-founded Monarch. That's a secret government agency created to track legendary monsters like Godzilla. Here's a scene from the show's trailer where Russell's character explains why he's coming out of retirement to help Monarch chase the monsters again. The world is on fire. I decided to do something about it. The mission was to protect their world and ours. That's what we wanted Monarch to be. And that sound at the end is Godzilla, of course. And if you haven't heard of this show, NPR TV critic Eric Degen says that is exactly the problem with Apple TV+. He's written a column for NPR.org on how Apple TV Plus has the best series on streaming that you've probably never heard of. And he's here with us to tell us more about it. Eric, hi. Hi. So this is a great subject to bring up during the Thanksgiving holiday when people might be looking for shows to watch after they stuff themselves. So what inspired you to write this column and how does the Monarch series fit into it? Sure. First, let's talk about Monarch Legacy of Monsters. It's this surprisingly ambitious series that gathers to the other characters and concepts from a bunch of monster movies released by Legendary Pictures. Now, Kurt Russell and his son Wyatt Russell play the same character at different ages, and the show was surprisingly good using these giant computer-generated monsters in the most creative ways you can imagine. Okay, that sounds great, but how did that lead you to the column? Well, you know, I was watching early screeners of the show and I caught myself thinking, you know, it's too bad that this is on Apple TV Plus because it's never going to be as big a hit as a show like Netflix's Stranger Things, where people who might not even watch the show know about it. And it occurred to me, Apple TV Plus has a lot of great programs that seem to fly under the radar. Yeah, they've got hits like Ted Lasso and the film Coda, but there's a lot of other really great projects with lesser visibility. In your piece, you talked about how Apple TV Plus has great science fiction programs and project featuring non-white characters. Sure, they have a great show, Silo, featuring Rebecca Ferguson and Tim Robbins about a dystopian future where people live in a giant underground silo 144 levels deep. And fans are still waiting for the second season of Severance, which is this quirky drama about office workers whose memories are severed between time at work and time at home. And they've also done a pretty good job with shows featuring non-white characters and performers from Idris Elba in Hijack to Dominique Fishback and Sam Jackson in the last days of Ptolemy Gray and the lush Korean family drama Pachinko, just so many great titles. Yeah, so so why aren't these shows getting more traction out in the pop culture universe? Well, Apple's got a valuation of nearly $3 trillion, so it's created this high-quality side benefit for people using Apple's universe of technology products. So making TV shows isn't their core priority like it is for Netflix and Max. But with the service recently increasing its price by $3 a month, they may need to remind people what they're getting for that extra money. Okay, so just to be sure that we're not making a commercial for Apple TV+. Plus, um, Are there some other series folks might like to check out over the Thanksgiving holiday? Sure. Well, the fifth season of FX's Fargo debuted this week, starring Juno Tempo and John Hamm. Very good. Netflix just debuted the first four episodes in the last season of The Crown, depicting the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. And HBO has debuted the second season of Julia, which is this wonderful series on cooking star Julia Child. All right. Lots of options. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. You can find Find Eric's column on Apple TV Plus at NPR.org. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. The look at the work that went into bringing whales back to the Indian Ocean. Hunters nearly wiped them out decades ago. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where high school students pursue their passions as far as they can take them. Virtual open house November 29th. Be curious, be kind, be you at BUA, online at buacademy.org. Hi there, it's Margaret Lowe, the CEO of WBUR. This is the day when we all think about what we're thankful for. For me, the answer is easy. I'm thankful for you. For your trust in WBUR, for your time, I know how precious it is, and for your enduring support. Before I dash to put my first-ever spatchcock turkey in the oven, I want to wish you and yours a happy Thanksgiving. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Israeli officials say they're delaying the four-day pause in fighting with Hamas until at least tomorrow. That also delays the release of hostages and Palestinian prisoners. In the Netherlands, a populist anti-Islam right-wing party appears to be headed to a big win in parliamentary elections. And the FBI says the deadly car crash that shut down several border crossings in Niagara Falls yesterday was not linked to terrorism. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. Sunny, breezy, and near 50 today. Clear skies in upper 30s tonight. Sunny in upper 40s tomorrow. Colder on Saturday in the upper 30s, and we'll have a mix of sun and clouds. It's 45 degrees in Boston. Best internal temperature for roasting a turkey, 165 degrees Fahrenheit. That taken care of, we're going to look at corporate profits here. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. I'm David Brancaccio on a Thanksgiving morning. Let's catch up now on a key engine of the economy, profits at companies. So far, firms on the S&P 500 list have reported that profits have grown about 4% on average in the quarter gone by. That's striking given all the expert predictions the U.S. would be in recession by now. We are not. Something else notable in this cascade of profit and losses is what analysts were looking for when they questioned company leaders about the road ahead. Marketplace's Novo Safo has that. It seems obvious that if you're a drug company manufacturing diabetes treatments, which are increasingly used for weight loss, these are known as GLP-1 drugs, then you'd expect analysts, which are tasked with forecasting future performance, to ask you about those drugs. But in recent calls with analysts, company leaders in other sectors fielded questions about the drugs as well, such as PepsiCo CEO Ramon LaGuarda. So far, the impact is negligible in our business. There's obviously a lot of question marks with regards to these obesity drugs. And Hershey CEO Michelle Buck. Certainly there are opportunities around portion size and pack type, and I think a lot of companies have been focused on that as you think about the potential impact of GLP-1s. Medical device companies were quizzed about potentially fewer procedures, health insurers about higher costs if they have to pay for expensive prescriptions. 
Overall, GLP-1s were mentioned twice as often than during second quarter results, according to a Reuters analysis. What's being talked about less often? Recession. A separate analysis by data firm FactSet finds the least mention of recession risks in earnings calls dating back to the end of 2021. Of course, it matters what sector companies are in, with real estate firms talking about recession the most. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Reporting profits in the days ahead, Salesforce, Kroger, and Campbell Soup. The outfit that insures bank deposits in America, the FDIC, normally gets headlines when it rescues a failing bank. But now the chair of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, Martin Gruenberg, is facing tough questions from members of Congress after published reports of a culture of bad behavior at that agency, including sexual harassment and discrimination. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has that. The tough questions came after reports in the Wall Street Journal of sexual harassment and racial discrimination at the FDIC. The agency's chair, Martin Gruenberg, was grilled about the allegations at congressional hearings last week. William Isaac headed the FDIC in the early 1980s. He says employees who are abusive should be fired, and the FDIC's top brass has to be on guard against abuse. Are they active enough? Probably not. If if the things are going on that I'm hearing about. They probably are not active enough, and they need to up the game because this kind of behavior is just unacceptable. In his congressional testimony, Chair Gruenberg said what he called the horrendous experiences of some FDIC employees were unacceptable. William Isaac knows Gruenberg and doesn't think he would have turned a blind eye. I don't believe he would have ignored that. I don't think that's him. The FDIC has hired an outside law firm to conduct an internal review. Some Senate Democrats are calling for an independent probe. The House Financial Services Committee is conducting its own investigation. And some Republicans are calling on Chair Gruenberg to resign. Isaac says Gruenberg serves as a tiebreaker on the five-member FDIC board. And if he did go... I'd be pretty positive there wouldn't be an agreement on some of the hot political topics of the day. Things like whether to require banks to hold bigger capital cushions in case of an emergency. But Isaac says the FDIC would still be able to do its job of supervising banks if it were without a chairman temporarily. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on. That's why Schwab has financial consultants ready to serve their clients, plus professional answers and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. And by How We Survive. Climate change is dire, but it does not have to be world-ending. New season of How We Survive from Marketplace, available wherever you get your podcasts. Russia's war on Ukraine forced millions of Ukrainian women and children to move towards safety. This displacement has contributed to the economic upheaval. For the women who have stayed, lives are being altered, many taking on new roles that were previously done by men. The BBC's Claire Williamson reports. Amongst the men working here, a relatively recent recruit to life underground. It's what I've always wanted to do, right from being a little girl. Tetiana works for Ukraine's private power company, DTEC. I used to see my dad and my granddad come out of the mine all dirty and used to wonder why. What's it like? My dad is really proud of me and I know my grandfather would be proud of me too because I am a machine operator like him. Like the energy sector the world over, its workforce is mainly male. That 
is beginning to change. Before the war, Tetiana's job was above ground, measuring methane levels in the mines. But now, this is her working day. I get to the mine at 6 in the morning and go to the office to get my instructions for the day. Then I go to the women's sauna and change my clothes. I pick up a helmet and lamp and my emergency kit. Then, at 6.40, I go down in the lift to the mine. I take a little train, we call it a carriage, and I go to my spot and take over from the girl whose shift has ended. It's a far cry from her previous job on the surface. Women doing jobs vacated by men who've gone to fight a war. This, of course, is nothing new. Women war workers in this country will be interested to see how their opposite numbers in America are doing man-sized jobs on the testing grounds of a Maryland arms factory. In World War II, women in Europe and North America moved into factories to take up roles making ships, planes and weapons. But that conflict didn't see women fighting on front lines. But in Ukraine, in 2023, it's different. Women are volunteering to join the army, to fight alongside men. In fact, 20% of Ukraine's armed forces are female. I'm the BBC's Claire Williamson for Marketplace. All right, take care on this Thanksgiving. I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Near 50 and sunny today, we'll also have some gusty winds, upper 30s tonight under clear skies. Tomorrow, sunny again in the upper 40s. On Saturday, temperatures will only be in the upper 30s. It'll be partly sunny. It's 45 degrees in Boston, and the BBC NewsHour is next. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.